there, this is Jeremiah Jenny, and welcome to another episode of Barbarians at the Gate. I'm here with my co-host, David Moser, who is still in coronavirus exile in New York. How you doing, David? Well, as well as could be expected, this is really pretty scary here, but I'm really glad to, to see your face and be doing a podcast. It takes my mind off the horrible things that are happening here. Yeah, well, things are getting kind of weird here in Beijing, and it's not just because of the quarantines and the lockdowns and the temperature checks, but also because, you know, if you if you're looking online and reading some of the international media, it, it sounds like we're heading in the middle of this crisis for a new Cold War, or at the very least, an information Cold War. Yeah, probably the worst uh, U.S.-China relationship that we've had since Tiananmen, if not even worse. Well, last week we had over a dozen journalists from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and Washington Post who were expelled. Well, it should say their press card, their press credentials, or press cards were taken away, which is means that they aren't allowed then to report from here, which is you know effectively expelled. And then they're not even allowed to report from Hong Kong, which is a, a an unprecedented decision on the part of the Chinese government. And also the, some of the news assistants, the, the, the local staff who really are kind of the beating en- heart or the engine of a lot of these bureaus, uh, some, of the, some of these local staff have also been pressured to no longer work for the bureaus. The sinologist uh, Orville Schell said this was like the next thing to shutting down the embassy. Well, you and I have both worked and taught and done research here in China for many, many years. And I thought what we could talk about today is our experiences both now and before as teachers and writers, and, and what has changed? And what is, this, what is the situation really like for people who are trying to get more information or trying to understand China from within? And David, maybe we could start with your experiences. You came here in the 1980s. You know, what was it like back then? And, and then we can talk about what it's like right now. Okay. I think it's good to, to in fact, you know, give a little overview of uh, where things have been and how they've deteriorated uh, just just for posterity's sake, but also to sort of uh, take stock of, of what's possible now, because I think that's that's really important. Um, the 80s, of course, was a very special time. China had just open, opened up. Uh, the Tiananmen Square incident uh, was an unfortunate end to to some of that momentum, but uh, but but basically the situation in the 80s and 90s for a foreigner was was somewhat similar. Um, you had a uh, a sort of a natural kind of a synergistic quality between uh, scholars like you and I, people who were coming from the West and wanted to study in China. We were back then. There weren't so many diverse f- uh, foreigners here. People from different backgrounds and and doing different things, different business and act different, different uh, from different areas. It was mostly people like me who were who were academics, people who were interested in culture, and people who were interested in Chinese culture in particular, and in particular the Chinese language. They were very. Uh, it was like a mirror image. Uh, dealing with them. They were also very interested in us. They were very interested in the West. Um, they were very interested in picking our brains, and we were very interested in picking theirs. And so it was to be a foreigner in the midst of, of that time in the 80s and 90s was a very sort of exciting and heady period because we've, we we had a sort of bond and connection with these, uh, with these uh, intellectuals and artistic uh, creators that... Um, gave us a, a sort of a very much of an inside look and an inside access to some of the movers and shakers of that period who were very interested in, you know, in, in hearing what we had to offer and also, uh, you know, in, in, 
sharing what they knew about China to us. In the 1980s, um, what was access like? What were the, some of the privileges and institutional relationships that you had that allowed you to be able to access you know, archives or, or people that would be useful for, for research or for learning more about what was happening in China? Well, first of all, uh, some of the, the leading academics, the, the writers, the musicians, the creative people um, were, were famous at that time, well known within China, not so much in the West. But because of the because of the living conditions, the state of China at that time, they really did not leave lead the sort of uh, separate cloistered lives that that the rich and famous uh, live now in the West and certainly in China also. So we were able to go to bars or, or to to talks and 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 run into and interact with the likes of people like rock star Cui Jian, who I got to know. Uh, the misty poets like Bei Dao, who I got to know and talk with several times, uh, Man Ke, the poet, the misty poet, people like uh, Ying Ruocheng, who was a very famous writer, theater person, uh, you know, was very accessible. You could go to his house and ask him questions. Cheng Kaige, even at that time, I saw him many times. Those of us who could speak Chinese and who felt comfortable with in Chinese and were uh, interested in Chinese culture would find themselves you know, at the homes uh, of some of these people or at uh, conferences or talks and were invited to, uh, you know, to interact with them. And we were given access. I sort of, I think of it as a sort of a foreign VIP card. If you were a foreigner, you would be given access to to archives, uh, to, uh, to be able to talk with and interview famous people. And uh, it was really an exciting time because we felt like we were not only like uh, academics, perhaps of the of previous generations, uh, only able to sort of uh, observe from a distance and write about it, we actually felt that we were able to not only talk to these people and learn about what was happening and be at the forefront, but we were actually to act to be in some sense a part of it because we had input also. There was a two way street there, and it, the interactions were were quite amazing and interesting and very productive well into the, the 1990s and, and 2000s. Something that's not so easy nowadays when we foreigners are not a, a special case. And in, and recently, perhaps, <laughs> even uh, you know uh, thought of as a kind of a virulent antibody, literally and figuratively speaking. Yeah, wh- when do you think this changed? I mean, you know, certainly the, the, certainly the situation around the Tiananmen Square demonstrations of 1989 and the crackdown and that that must have been kind of a turning point in some way, right? Well, not really, because uh, it was a turning point in the sense that uh, there was a there was a period of time in the early '90s when people were were much more afraid to come out and and talk and interact with with foreigners. Um, but keep in mind, this was still a pre-internet and pre-computer, uh, basically days, and. Uh, it was not a situation now where where the, the, the police and the and the the uh, the monitoring organizations have access to your your data. They know where you are. They can easily find you. People were very. There were lots of uh, spaces, sort of uh, private, semi-private spaces where where people could get together, hold meetings. There were all kinds of of they call them shalons, you know, salons, cultural shop, where people were willing to talk. Academics at Peking University and, and elsewhere. We're, we're still very willing in, in private uh, with foreigners to be very frank and forthcoming about what uh, what was happening. And uh, 
all the 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 only trick was to find those private spaces to to gain access to gain their trust and then it's very easy to find a, a little cafe or, or go out to a park and and have a very open conversation and we were still able to get a vast amounts of very interesting and uh very relevant pertinent information not only not only we academics like you and I but reporters uh, people who were you know doing doing various kinds of research and as i say at that time if they ran into a foreigner, they could be pretty sure the foreigner was there in China to learn about China and to and would welcome the chance to interact with them and share information. So uh, there wasn't a sort of uh, dance that happens now where people Chinese people are not quite sure who you are and want to make sure that you're on the up and up before they want to deal with you. Back back then, it was almost a given that uh, you were a, you were a in, interested. China savvy academic who would be someone who, who could talk to you. And frankly, they were also very, very interested sometimes in getting their story or their artwork or their particular ideas out into the, 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 the global uh, information space. You know, they would love for you to write an article about them. And uh, so, again, I say there was, there was this kind of a, uh, exciting synergy between the two groups of we, we foreigners um, you know, trying to understand China and the Chinese intellectuals and movers and shakers, um, who who were who were also interested in, in in making contact with us, because in a certain sense we both had the same goals. We were both interested uh, in the same kinds of cultural issues, and we shared a common enemy in some sense. We we were the type of people who were suspicious of authoritarian uh, regimes, who were very critical not only of the of the of the CCP, the communist regime, but also. Uh, you know our the American you know regime as well, and and people were the intellectuals of course uh, are very much outside that we we exist in a space that's that's uh, very much uh, you know we have common ground in terms of our relationship to power inherently. So uh, it, it was a, it was such an exciting time, and and I think that's one of the one of the things that kept me in China and kept me engaged for so long was was that. I, I didn't feel like I was just an anthropologist who was who was gathering data. I was someone who, in some sense, was in the midst of it, uh, although not quite, a, you know, aware of exactly what my role might be. But but being you know buffeted around and subject to the same kinds of forces, it felt just being integrated and being immersed in an amazing process. And and that's something that's really <laughs> changed a lot since uh, since the two thousands. You also transitioned into something of a public role on occasion, too, uh, appearing on television. And, and you were one of a handful of, at that time anyway, a handful of um, international residents in, in China who would appear on TV. Yeah, that, that was, that's a good example of the kind of uh, effect that, that foreigners had or the, or the role that they were able to find, because there was a fascination about us. And there was a kind of a, uh, as as we all know from, f this has been well covered, and and the, the famous Dashan is is the primary uh, canonic case of the foreigner who speaks good Chinese and is suddenly given, uh, uh, you know, uh, amazing uh, access to Chinese television programming, uh, and appearing on and and becoming overnight sensations. Uh, there was the downside to that was was that it, it, we were basically. Uh, sort of uh, curiosities, almost like circus sideshow freaks, you know, the Chinese-speaking uh, foreigner. And we were, you know, used as such, you know, by producers. I was a very small figure in that. I, I, I also did the, uh, like Mark Rose, Rosewell, uh, Dashan's uh, area of crosstalk, Xiangsheng, and, and took a, a teacher, Ding Wangqian, and, and did the usual thing. Um, 
which which was which was kind of meta interesting and, and meta informative in a way. Uh, you, you you knew you were being used, and most foreigners are being used when they go on TV, even to this day. But you also felt like that this was a very interesting process in that that it opened a lot of doors and allowed for all sorts of things to happen. Now, I, I think I should mention uh, my friend uh, uh, Dashan Mark Rosewell, a Canadian, because his he said, uh, and I don't think he would mind me uh, mentioning this uh, in a semi-public, I guess this podcast this was public setting. Um, but he, like I, has had become disenchanted at the, at the 90s and the early 2000s with this uh, on screen kind of the, the foreign the, the place of the foreigner in the in media and I was also doing news shows and and, and still do go on TV and do, do do news commentary and talk and talk shows but but Mark's comment was sort of interesting you know he he if I can paraphrase, paraphrase his remarks to me you know he, he said you know I, he said I was willing to put up with all kinds of of nonsense in the in the late in the 90s and up to the 2000s uh, including things that I wasn't really on board with, things I thought were silly, because we felt like that, that we were making a difference, that things were getting better, um, that, uh, that, that, that China was changing very quickly, that China was opening up, that the discourse was changing, and we were all a part of that. And the recent feeling that I've had and that, that peop, other people who do Chinese media, foreigners who do Chinese media, uh, this sort of sinking feeling that, we're, that it's not moving anymore, in that direction, towards freedom, towards openness, towards uh, uh, you know, open uh, discourse, it's moving in the, back in the opposite direction, and we're not making a difference, and we're still being used, and it's it's to no effect, and it's 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 been very disheartening to see that. It's been very uh, saddening to see China move in the opposite direction, and unfortunately, that trajectory is is followed by many other domains that I'm sure we'll talk about. Yeah, because I, I mean, I arrive in the early 2000s and looking back now, I, I mean, I, I don't have the same experience with the uh, 80s and 90s, but and maybe it's also a lot. It's human nature to kind of idealize the moment you arrive in a place as being like that was the moment to be here. But I remember you know, thinking back to the early 2000s in Beijing and there was a lot of excitement because the Olympics were coming up, a lot of rules, a lot of regulations that had previously um, control people's lives, you know, everything from the, from the currency to where foreigners could go, where they could stay, where they could live had, you know, had, had become much more relaxed or evaporated completely. And, you know, even as, as a typical, you know, spoiled, overfed American, you know, I remember whinging all the time in the early 2000s about, you know, all the things I still couldn't do. And I, I'm sitting, you know, I'm sitting in my apartment uh, in Beijing in 2020, looking back now and, and thinking to myself, I mean, if I'd only known I was living in the glorious age of openness and tolerance <laughs> that was the Hu Jintao era. And you know, if, 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 20, if 2004 me heard me saying that, he probably would have slapped me in the head. But it's, it's true. And uh, I get concerned, you know, at how quickly it feels like um, much of the gains in terms of openness and the cosmopolitanism of the cities yeah. and uh, and ideas has been eroded um, in yeah. just a decade. That was also the the that was also the decade too, at least for me, when I started teaching. Yeah, and and I I think um, I, I don't know about you, David. When you when you transition from being more of um, the student or the researcher and into now being the teacher, 
what was that activity like, or how was that different from being learner from being a learner? Well, let's talk about that because that's something you and I have uh, in common, and, and maybe that's one area we can just mention a bit here. You know, there's teaching teaching Chinese students, and then there's teaching study abroad students. But to talk about this study abroad trajectory, there was a time in the 2000s when you know China was opening up. It was becoming exciting, economically powerful, and you had this influx of foreign students. And there were many, there were lots of, there was a proliferation of study abroad programs. And everyone thought that this was the new uh, trend. It, it seemed like that, that this China was going to be the coolest place to study abroad. And that, that it was not only, I think you felt, as I did, that, that with your China experience, that nothing could be more important than to be teaching these study abroad students about China because China was going to be in their future. China was going to be the most you know, uh, important bilateral relationship in the United, the United States had, but certainly a global force that we had not reckon, thought to reckon with. And uh, this was all pre-Olympics, 2008. The, the, the CET, your program, all these programs, the Beijing Center was going strong. And lots of students flocking here, learning about China. Um, and by the way, at that time, one of the things we could could offer to our students, not only was the academic side and, and Chinese language learning, which of course was de rigueur, you know, but also uh, in, to offer them the, the uh, opportunity to volunteer with various NGOs, which had sprung up. And the NGO world was an incredibly rich and unruly, wildly proliferating sort of domain where you had literally, I think I've heard the figure that there were literally a million or more uh, NGOs operating at some point or other in China. And very often they were very open to uh, foreign interns, who, whether they could speak Chinese or not. And so I was placing students in all kinds of Chinese interns and things like uh, Roots and Shoots and uh, you know Jane Goodall's program and environmental organizations, even even you know human rights organizations, and also NGOs, uh, you know dealing with the plight of the migrant workers. So this was this was an exciting time, and I think you said you know you talked about uh, you know the space, or maybe that's the term that I used. There, despite the fact that you know it was a repressive regime, they they were cracking down on dissidents, and and they did not like the kind of information, kinds of things they might have been studying. There were so many spaces where we could operate with semi-autonomously, or with 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 a surprising degree of freedom. And I agree with you. In retrospect, the Hu Jintao area era, and the early two thousands uh, up until two thousand eight was a sort of golden age, where where study abroad and all these sorts of uh, influx of foreigners seem to be creating something that was going to change China and 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 also in the process uh, revolutionize what was happening globally. And we were all a part of it and our students could be a part of it. It was an exciting period. I think you just made the case that somebody made to Xi Jinping around 2013 about why he had to shut all that shit down. <laughs> There were just too many Probably spaces so. for the proliferation of NGOs, and there were all these opportunities for people to come here and to change China. And you know, I think one of the things about that, I mean, I mean, it's been it's been I think pretty well reported that you know Xi Jinping came in. One of the things he came in with was an idea or even a mandate that the you know, Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao era administration had gotten dangerously lax in right. guiding public opinion. Allowing these, as, you were, as we are talking about, these gray areas for right. international organizations, local organizations to, you know, shape the narrative, to shape uh, people's understandings of China. 
you know, some of the rules that were relaxed for foreign journalists in the 2000s as part of the you know, run up to the Olympics allowed, on pre- at, at least in terms of the 21st century, you know, unprecedented access to parts of China to report on issues that were going on. Um, right. You know, there still were um, unofficial restrictions and, and harassment, but you know, it was it was a very different time for reporting than it had been, you know, in the 1980s or 1990s. And then I, I think all of that, you know, in total, um, seemed seemed as you said, you know, dangerous and unruly um, mm. to to the incoming administration. And I, you know, it's it's not. I don't think it's an accident that these are exactly the kind of spaces that one by one, uh, the the new administration has worked very hard to try to um, shut down and to uh, to close. And you know, one of the areas I always think of. When I was teaching, I taught mostly American students, and these are students, you know, as as you were saying, on study abroad. We operated inside universities, and by and large, that was kind of a somewhat somewhat safe space, you know. We had our classes, we had our library, and there were a lot of books in that library that, you know, you you probably couldn't find in a lot of other libraries in China. And and I'm sure our handlers at the university, you know, they had – they had an idea about what we were teaching, but it was, you know, I guess the policy was kind of at that time anyway, was don't ask, don't tell. You know, we could do lectures exactly. at our center about, you know, uh, urban development in Tibet. And we could even, you know, invite some of our Chinese teachers and some of the roommates, the Chinese roommates who live with our students to attend. But we weren't going to put posters all around campus advertising something like that. And as long right. as we kind of kept it quiet, we were fine. By the time, um, you know, we get into... The last the last few years that I was teaching full time anyway, uh, you know, you started to have suggestions that maybe the dean would like to sit in on one of your classes or, you know, and some of the programs have even reported. I, I won't say who because they, you know, they still have their relationships, but you were reporting that uh, they were having to um, submit some of their materials for vetting before they were used. And this was in classrooms with with international students as weren't classrooms with Chinese students. So, you know, we saw in a range of different areas, NGOs, um, teaching, educa- teaching and education, the media, uh, the online environment, the, me- the entertainment environment, a closing of these spaces, it has an effect. Um, and, you know, on, from on the ground, from, from, our, from my perspective, you know, it's a much more difficult place, obviously, to teach and to study and to write. There are things that I, you know, we talk about self-censorship and, you uh, you know, oh, yeah. there are things I would have written about in 2009. I probably, you know, it's not that I'm saying I'm, I'm not going to write about it. It's just, you know, I I always have a list of things I want to write about. And I'm likely to, I mean, I'll, I'll admit it, I'm likely to choose the thing that's not going to, you know, cause me uh, to have to turn in my visa. Now, again, I'm not a journalist. I'm not, you know, you know, I'm not a, I'm not somebody who's re- whose responsibility is to report everything that's happening in China. But people like us, honestly, do contribute in our own small drip, drip way to a greater discourse. And especially now when there are so, so, so there are far fewer independent scholars, academics, you know, um, wandering around Beijing. That's right. It's ac- academia itself has, has, is no longer a safe space. It, it's, it's very much uh, surveilled, controlled. And unfortunately, I have to say, um, some of the people in academia, the people who are there now, the, the, those people, their their ideology is different. Their their backgrounds are different. 
their understanding of China and their, their, their sense of national identity is very different. And sometimes you cannot just relax and talk with them in a frank and friendly, open way that you that in the old days you could because you're no longer quite sure what this person is thinking. So it's we engage in self-censorship. And as, as this happened, you know, for economic reasons, for all kinds of reasons, the study abroad field has shriveled. And this uh, coronavirus disaster may be its death nail in some sense, at least for China, uh, for the, at least for the coming, for the near future. And so here we are, Jeremiah. What, what do, how, do we, how do we sum all this up? So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, and I, I promise I'll answer the same question, so let's make this fair. You know, what is it for you that still brings you back here and still and you still feel like there's something to accomplish here in China? Well, that sounds like a hard question, but I can probably be very simple in my answer. I, uh, I have emotional attachment to China. I've been here so long. Uh, I married into it. Uh, so uh, my wife is Chinese. So China is my country-in-law. I really want to be a part of what happens next. I think there's still a role for me to play, although probably perhaps a shrinking one. And I still, in a crazy way, I'm still optimistic about what what can happen and what and and I think there is something that still is important and can be salvaged with the U.S.-China relation. And I think as being a bridge between those two cultures, I think there's still a role for me. And and even if it's a small role, I'm happy to continue to play it because, uh, you know, it's just my life now. I don't I can't go back and restart do a reset. And so um, I'll be interested in following what happens, even if I can't be there, but I'd like to be a part of it if possible. That's my answer. That's a good, I mean, do you feel welcome here still? Not as much as before. Um, I I, I say my my friends, the people I work with, the the people I do music with, uh, the people I've known for 30 years, they're still good friends. We're still on good terms. But I have to say there are certain areas that used to be very open to me, that be very friendly. Uh, welcoming that are now closed or that now are afraid to include me because I'm an American, fr- frankly, or or areas in which new people have taken hold uh, or have taken the, the reins of control and are not inclined to uh, include Americans or foreigners uh, in what they're doing. And so a lot of the things I used to do on a, on a, on a regular, regular basis have dried up. Some of the some of the TV shows I used to go on now uh, I almost can't even talk to the people there because we're we're so far apart in our in our uh, thinking and our in our worldviews. Uh, but that's that's how things you know things change and China changes and uh, you know we have to make a we have to make a new path and, and that's kind of what, where we're at now. Yeah, I feel I feel very similar to how you how you feel. I think that. I still think there's a big role to be played in educating uh, students about China, and I still think the best place to do that is in China. I think that, that, that even more now, even than before, I think it's important that you know other countries, the United States, have you know a cohort of people who have an understanding of not just the language but the culture and an understanding of worldviews. And that comes from learning history. It comes from being here. It comes from conversations. Is that as easy as it was 10 years ago, 15 years ago? No, probably not. And is the access the same? Definitely not. But I I still think there's some value to bringing people here. And I I think that at least I feel like I can play a small role in, in being, you know, you know, a, a bit of a, a guide, if you will, 
sometimes quite literally, uh, to, to folks who are who are visiting and helping them to understand, uh, you know, this country. In terms of welcoming, you know, I I definitely feel the chill, you know, and it, it started before, you know, you have Chinese officials winking at ideas that the Americans are the ones who started the COVID-19 virus in Wuhan, which, by the way, almost everybody here believes. It's, it's really kind of frightening the extent to which this idea that this is a foreign virus is becoming part of the the general information zeitgeist and, and even more so because every day we have reports of new cases in China. They're all being dutifully reported as being imported cases, you know, six from Boston, six from uh, Italy, three from, you know, UK, five from the United States, whatever it is. It doesn't generally get mentioned that most of those people are actually Chinese nationals returning from those countries. And so whatever the reality is, many people on the ground here are starting to feel like it's the foreigners who are carrying the virus to China. And it's been interesting this last week or so, like walking around and seeing people just scatter uh, when they see a foreigner thinking that I'm, you know, I have, I could possibly have the virus. It's now prudence is fine. And the other thing I would just like to point out very quickly, this is a very socially awkward thing for me, uh, but it is nowhere, nowhere, nowhere near what people of Asian descent have had to go through for the last couple of months around the world in terms of you know, physical and verbal harassment. So let me just put that right out there. I haven't experienced anything like that, but there are reports of, you know, hotels and other places denying entry to foreigners. And, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's part of the, that all goes, it's, it's a block that gets built in the brain when you're thinking like, okay, I'm here for another year. And I'm going to justify that. And, you know, I feel like I still have a mission here. But at the same time, it's hard to be someplace where, you know, you, you get the feeling that not only you're not wanted, but, you know, if you believe some of the more alarmist people online, you know, everyone here is, is one bad news report away from going full boxer rebellion. I think that's probably a little extreme, but, you know, certainly it's something I think about more than I did five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Yeah, I think you bring up a really great point. I just add a short little addendum too, which is uh, when I when I first started working here, teaching uh, as a bridge, so back and forth, teaching both Chinese and foreigners. I thought that my main task was really to convey what China was all about to the foreigners, to the Americans specifically, because they know much less. I mean, the Chinese knew much more about us than we knew about them. So it was, there was this uh, disparity. Nowadays, oddly, I feel like there's so much disinformation, these, these, these tribal uh, information bubbles, that, that I feel like both sides now are actually uh, horribly misunderstanding uh, the other because of the, just the fake news and dissemination of, of these tropes that are politically motivated. Uh, people like you and I who, who, are, who live in both uh, information worlds are, are now have as our duty to sort of dispel all the misinformation that's coming from both sides. So it's kind of a sad irony that the information, <laughs> the the information has not gotten better; it's gotten worse. Yeah, it's tough when it's tough when you know. Before I was coming at it from the perspective of filling some gaps in knowledge, and now I feel like whether I'm talking to someone from China or talking from someone from the U.S., often I have to unpack their existing knowledge a little bit to figure right. out w what kind of information they have and, and where did it come from. And it's not helpful. I, I guess that's an understatement that you know, all the oxygen in the room gets sucked up by, you know, statements on one side by, 
you know, the great communicator, Donald Trump. And on the other side, you know, people like Zhao Lijian, who's a Chinese foreign ministry official who just has that sort of right. Trumpian way of distracting everybody from issues by saying just outrageous things online. And apparently there's some debate about this, but may have his supporters you know, inside the foreign ministry and even inside the government. And when, when these are the people who are talking, um, you know, it becomes, and I, I think this is almost literal at this point, a pox on both their houses. Yeah, I definitely feel everything you just said. I feel it. Yeah. You know, I, this is obviously a situation that is evolving, both in terms of the rhetoric, both in terms of the situation around coronavirus, but also in terms of the situation for uh, foreign nationals who are working, living, studying, researching in China. I have a feeling this is a subject that, you know, in the course of our podcast, we may revisit uh, periodically, both either you and I, or maybe also when we bring on, you know, other guests who are people who also um, occupy kind of a similar space. But I guess for now, um, I just wanted to say, while you're still in New York, which I, I, is becoming kind of the epicenter of the virus in the United States, uh, you know, stay stay safe, David, and uh, uh, I'll talk to you. I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. All right. Thanks very much, Jeremiah. You, you too. I, I feel like there's no safe space right now. So, yeah, let's keep in touch, and I look forward to talking with you next next week. Thanks, everybody, and uh, tune in in two weeks for our next episode.